The Spiritual Brew Pub Podcast will help you navigate spiritually after or during a belief shift, deconstruction, or crisis of faith. Not to try to convert you to a particular destination, but give you the resources you need to evaluate your future belief or unbelief and help you follow the religious historical evidence wherever it leads. I'm your host, Michael Camp, a recovering conservative evangelical, the operative word being recovering, sharing my journey and helping others rebuild faith or a reasoned philosophy of life. So grab your brew of choice and learn how fact-based history helps us both critique and rethink faith. Why do we call it a brew pub? Because we like to hang out in them, at least metaphorically. A pub is a great place to let your hair down, share your true thoughts about your journey, and discuss things with an open mind in a non-judgmental environment. Welcome everyone to the Spiritual Brew Pub podcast. This is the safe haven for ex-evangelicals, people questioning organized religion, and anyone interested in the history of Christianity. I'm your host, Michael Camp. Today, I'm really excited to have David Artman as our guest. David is a former pastor. He's an author and a podcaster in his own right. And he wrote this great book called Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. David, welcome to our podcast. Well, I'm glad to I'm glad to be able to visit with you and uh, and have this conversation with you today. Great, yeah, I'm glad you're here too. Um, we're going to talk about uh, your journey, uh, the topic of grace, and of course, the topic of the afterlife, which is always the hot topic. <laughs> yeah, and we're going to delve into the case that you make, David, uh, that what some people call Christian universalism is really a necessity given the claims of what God is like that Jesus made, that his first followers made, and <clears throat> that people uh, who are called the church fathers made yeah. uh, in, in the uh, earliest parts of this Jesus movement that started in the first century. Yeah. And as our listeners know, I, I like to tee up these conversations with some background. So if you uh, allow me to just give a little background for our listeners, um, as I read your book, I saw that you and I have a lot in common. Uh, we were both impacted by Christian fundamentalism from an early age. Mm-hmm. Got into you more, event. you more than you more than I. You actually, you actually lived it. I just, I just got a glancing blow. You got a glancing blow, but my, I started living it uh, more in my um, uh, early twenties. Oh, okay. But I was, I was impacted in, in youth group and so forth. Uh-huh. Uh, et cetera. So, and then, um, you know, we uh, saw an array of evangelism techniques from <laughs> hellfire and brimstone yeah. to attractive youth evangelistic fervor uh, to, uh, you know, the softer, compelling and certain very logical and intellectual arguments that, that people have um, uh, uh, from the likes of people like C.S. Lewis, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, although I got into Francis Schaeffer a little bit more. I'm not sure if you did too, but I was into him as well. Okay. And, and also, you know, we both had some, some profound spiritual experiences that reinforced uh, what we're going to talk about today, grace and the inclusive love of God. Yeah. Um, 
And then a few years ago, we both went to this uh, conference uh, called the Forgotten Gospel Conference in Denver. And we didn't know each other at the time, so we never talked, but right. uh, we, we realized we had similar journeys. And wasn't that hosted by P Peter Hyatt? Um, yeah, Peter that? Hyatt. Yeah, Peter Hyatt. And uh, I just recently interviewed Peter on my podcast. Oh, cool. Right. Yeah. So Peter, uh, for people who don't know, the Sanctuary Church in Denver, the yeah. Sanctuary Church in Denver. And uh, Peter um, uh, became a universalist uh, and started teaching about it and lost most of his congregation. <laughs> yeah, it's similar, quite a story. To, similar to the story of Carlton Pearson. Um, yeah. So anyways, we want you know, to cover Peter, a lot. Yeah, I think Peter, you know, he his Calvinism he just the the limited atonement he couldn't do that anymore and that's what right. got him in trouble you know but he still is a very committed to the scriptural text and um you know very sincere in his in his trying to fit this all together within a within a really a historical christian context right yes i remember him speaking about that he does a good yeah. job at that um so anyways well, we, we want to cover quite a bit today, but let's start okay. by uh, learning why you wrote this book. Why did you write this book, David? Well, you know, I was uh, going through a lot of changes in my own spirituality. I'm a minister in the Christian Church, Disciples of Christ, and we're an interesting denomination in that we don't have one doctrinal statement that everybody's got to sign on to, which I found refreshing, and that's why I kind of got involved. Oh, yes, uh, absolutely. Know, in, my, kind of in my early 20s. Because all the church says is if you believe in God and you want to follow Jesus as your savior, what, whatever that means to you as you read the Bible to the best of your understanding and you want to be in community in a non-judgmental way as we do this together and really be honest and supportive of each other, let's do this. And that was just a great invitation. And, um, you know, so I, I eventually ended up in ministry and I was trying to help people to have hope in their life. But I, what I discovered was is that the doctrine of eternal hell uh, it was something that i left behind a long time ago but i found that it was keeping people away from jesus and i was just becoming aware that there are just a lot of people who have it in their mind that being a christian means that they have to believe god put some number of people in a hell of eternal torment and they can't wrap their mind around it and because of that you know they can't they can't come to jesus and so you know ironically i found that it was it was, it was this doctrine of eternal hell that was keeping people away from Jesus. But I am convinced that Jesus is the most amazing person who's ever lived. He's the presence of God on earth, however you know people understand that. But to me, I've discovered him as the source of grace and mercy and love and forgiveness, and we all need him in our lives. And so I just wanted people to know that, that they could be Christian, that they could have Jesus in their life. And this whole thing about a doctrine of eternal hell and a doctrine of eternal torment, that was just a tradition that got developed over the, over the history of the church, but it wasn't necessarily there in the beginning, and it, and it wasn't an essential part. Right, yep. It, and this was a big enough thing that I just felt like I needed to put it together in a book. My book isn't very long, but it's long enough for somebody to get an idea about why I think this is a valid way to be Christian. Right. Well... Yeah, you, I think you did a really good job of putting all the elements together. I've done a lot of research on this myself, and I found, oh, you know, quite a bit that I hadn't known about. So I think you did a great job. Thank you. Um, and uh, it is so true that most people don't realize 
historically uh, what happened yeah. in the early part of this faith that we call Christianity. And uh, because of that, uh, we're just we're just uh, blinded to some of these things, and 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 we don't realize how much tradition is driving. Uh, some of these doctrines. You know, the, the ironic thing about this, like, we'll talk about this a little bit more. I didn't really grow up going around church too much, but uh, when I was around them, these folks, they would say that we just believe the Bible. We don't believe the traditions of men. But yeah. What I found out was that they believed the greatest, one of the greatest traditions of men of all time, which was the eternal hell tradition, that that was a tradition. But they said it wasn't a tradition. They said that's what the Bible taught. But then I found out, no, that's a tradition too. <laughs> yes, right. I know. Yeah, people say that sometimes say the right words. Oh, yes, we don't believe in all these, you know, myths or traditions. We believe straight from the Bible, right? Without really thinking it through and not realizing how problematic some of those some of these Bible passages are. Yeah, that, yeah. You find out no, the eternal torment, the eternal yeah. tor eternal torment doctrine is a tradition. Maybe one of the yes. oldest traditions. Right. Right. Well, you know, we talked. Uh, you mentioned that. Uh, you know, you didn't really come into the faith um, until later, but you did have uh, encounters with um, this doctrine and, you know, the uh, Christian fundamentalism approach uh, from a as uh, from a child's perspective. Yeah. And I, I never forget you. You wrote in your book, you the first time, one of the first times or whatever it was that you went into a church and it was hellfire and brimstone preaching. You you basically said to your whoever was taking you your mom yeah. this place is scary i'm not going back <laughs> tell yeah. us about yeah. that experience well you know when i was little i didn't grow up going to church i was an only child and i had tons of parental love and i felt so valuable you know i wasn't spoiled monetarily but i never once doubted my parents love for me and i never once doubted my value and um you know, just I can remember, you know, like when you're little, you, you experience it. It sounds kind of, you know, try or sounds kind of funny to say it now. But I remember like going to watch Pinocchio and Jiminy Cricket saying, when you wish upon a star and just, mm -hmm. you know, I was there with my parents and the world was a wonderful place and dreams come true. And I was loved. And mm -hmm. I just felt I just felt all of all of that. You know, I was big into Santa Claus. Yeah, I was really, uh, Santa Claus was very important uh, in my little early life. And, uh, you know, I, I started around December making sure I was being a good boy. And, uh, and uh, I got gifts from Santa. And so I was on the good list. And mm -hmm. then, you know, sort of, uh, as a, but then I get exposed to Christianity. And basically, uh, when my mom took me, the way it was, I started to get the idea that that God was really angry. And the, yeah. the, the minister told a story about some teenagers that had been drinking and gotten an accident and they died and that God sent them to hell forever because they hadn't accepted Jesus as their savior. And it was, I was just traumatized by that experience that there would be a being that would get so furious with teenagers that he would torture them forever for a mistake that they made. Yeah, right. Um, that... It just it was it was just really traumatic for I just didn't even know what to do with that. I yeah. just knew it was just like a like a child knows. I just knew that there was something wrong with that place. Right. Yeah. You not knew want to go back wrong. there. Yeah. I mean, when you think about it, it's so crazy. Um, and what was the reaction of the people in the church? I mean, did they have, have that same reaction? 
Well, I don't know. I mean, we didn't know really the people in the church. Mother didn't really go. She just felt like it was sort of her job as a parent to at least take me so I would know what it was. So we just right. went in. Right. And, and, you know, they were, this man told this horrible story and then people sang a bunch of songs. Yeah. Everybody <laughs> acted like it was like, this was good. Yeah. They acted like it was good. Like right. People weren't, yes. people weren't like, they told a story that should have horrified everybody. Yeah. And nobody was horrified. Uh, that's right. That's the point. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. So um, I, that would be very traumatic. And uh, but you also encountered other, you know, instances where people were trying to share this message with you. Yeah. Uh, like, there was yeah. a girl and 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 youth group or something. Tell us about that. And then the and then the final one was just how does that compare with like when you got into C.S. Lewis and some of his arguments? Well, what happened was, I mean, I just grew up in the Bible Belt, and attempts to save me were just persistent. Um, and it was just, you know, everybody was trying to, everybody was on edge about this eternal hell thing. And uh, I was in the fifth grade, and I said I was the only child, and um, my parents were going to go out, and I guess they didn't want to, you know, maybe they, maybe they were concerned I'd get into stuff. I don't know. But they, uh, uh, but they hired a, a babysitter to come and stay with me. And I thought I was too old for a babysitter. And I remember counting. I remember thinking, okay, I'm this age. So that means, wow, in like four or five years, girls are going to look like this. <laughs> and uh, so it was just amazing. You know, it was like suddenly I was in the presence of this beautiful woman. And my parents left. And she started, uh, she started asking me questions about spirituality and about church and stuff like that. And she found out that I wasn't saved. And that really uh, got her upset. And, and she tried to explain to me that even if you couldn't think of anything wrong, you know, and I'm like in the fifth grade, even if you couldn't think of anything wrong that you've ever done, God, even if you have one single bad thought, will send you to hell forever oh and torture you there forever and ever, unless you accept Jesus as your savior. And you better do this tonight because if you don't, if you die tonight before you wake up, you're gonna be in hell forever. You know, and it was just, you know, it was just really, it was just very, it was, you know, it was really scary. And, you know, this this beautiful girl, you know, it's like she was looking at me like, you know, like in the eyes and right. really, really concerned Paying attention about me. to you, right, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, so I was getting all this attention and it's like, right. well, you know, maybe this is the only thing you can do. And so she led me in a prayer and I said the prayer and then, and then, um, uh, then, you know, eventually my parents came back. When I told my parents what happened, they got this really kind of like, it wasn't like, oh my gosh, what a wonderful thing has happened to you. It was like, ooh. That's creepy, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's creepy. And so the whole thing, you know, it just left me feeling like more confused and terrified about the whole the whole God thing. It was just like, I so, and there were some other experiences. I had friends that would invite me to church and every now and then I would go. And it was more the same thing with all this emotionalism and, and they would, you know, every head, you know, every every eye closed and every head bowed. And that made me like a little, that's a little weird. Like, you know, that doesn't sound right. Like, why are they why do they not want anybody to see what's going on? Yeah, and, right. It was a technique to get people to to, yeah, to raise their it, hand. <laughs> right. Yeah. And people all seemed right. really it, it just all right. seemed really emotionally manipulative. Right. And if I started to ask questions, the basic answer was, well, you shouldn't really ask questions. It's it's basically, even if you don't think this makes sense. It's better to believe it and to go to heaven, exactly. Than to disbelieve it and to go to hell forever, 
Right. Yep. And so I, the whole thing just seemed, I, I developed the impression that being Christian meant checking your brain at the door, agreeing to believe whatever they told you without asking any questions. Right. Yeah. And so, and so that yep. was just kind of, that was just kind of what I thought it was. And it wasn't until later when I was in college and I'm, my parents went through a divorce and it wasn't like this, they weren't, it wasn't like this mean, terrible affair. But as I was getting older, I was realizing I was looking around and there were a lot of adults that just weren't very happy and every, and, and I thought about it and I thought, well, suppose I did even find somebody that I fell in love with and we got married even, but death could take her away from me or me from her or, but eventually it was going to get us both that there, that death sort of wins in the end. And mm -hmm. I just went through this real kind of depression. And then I started looking for some, started being a little more open to some kind of spirituality and ironically, I was back home at uh, in Irving, Texas, and I was working out the YMCA, and this um, youth minister from this church that I had visited was there, and he saw me, and he invited me to come and visit with him. And so I was a little hesitant, but I decided to go and you know visit with him in his office, and uh, I just told him about all my reservations. And surprisingly, you know, he didn't argue with me. He just said, well, maybe you should check out C.S. Lewis. And so... I, uh, he said he recommended mere Christianity. And so I went and got that book and, and I read it. And it was kind of a revelation because here was Lewis. He was this very intellectually serious person. And he was, and he had been skeptical in his life. And I just never realized that you could be intellectual and a Christian. And the vision of God that he had was a much nicer God than, right. than the one that they had talked about at that church I later on I wondered you know it's like I was reading that book and I thought that about that youth minister it was like I wonder why he gave this to me because this isn't the vision of God that they had at, at his church I think it was almost I think his thoughts was like okay well if you're getting ready to leave the whole Christian faith you might you might as well at least just check out C.S. Lewis before you you know go out the door right and so that uh, C.S. Lewis kind of gave me a foothold and it's like if I could you know, the God that C.S. Lewis is describing is, does seem to me to be good. Um, and so that was, that was the, that was the beginning. And I found out that once I sort of reached out to this spiritually good God, I was starting to have some good spiritual things happen for me. Yeah. Okay. And I eventually found a church and we, maybe we talk about that a little bit later, but I found a church that was really kind of open to, to questioning and not telling me everything I had to think. Was that a, the same denomination you, you mentioned before, Disciples of Christ? Yeah, I was I was at Texas Tech, and a friend of mine had grown up in the First Christian Church in Midland, Texas, and he said, you know, listening to you, you sound like somebody that might enjoy the Christian church, and so I went and checked out First Christian Church in Lubbock, Texas, and it's a congregation of the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, and the cool thing about this church was they had rejected creeds as tests of fellowship. So they didn't have some long doctrinal statement. They just said, if you believe in God, if you want to follow Jesus as your savior to the best of your understanding, you know, we'll read the Bible together. It's, and there's a lot of different ways that people interpret this thing, but we'll look in it together and we'll all try to live our best lives, you know, following Jesus. It's a humbling thing. Right. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, um, I, I liked, I really liked that, uh, uh, approach that you're describing in that Disciples of Christ Church. Yeah, it's a small, um, it, small denomination. What I found out is it's not a good recipe for a big denomination. Right, right. Because there's not enough central command or control. Yeah, People are giving right. way too it's much interesting. freedom. Right, yeah. You know? so, so it's like, um, yeah, 
there's no statement of faith that you have to sign off on. It's just, you know, like very simple. Let's follow Jesus together. Right. And, and there's no inner, there's no inner out. There wasn't any preaching of other people into hell. Yes. It was right. just, it was so, just, you know, we're just here to follow Jesus. Yeah, that's, that's great. I mean, so, you know, I didn't, I wish I had had that experience. I might've liked, I would have fit into that better, but, but most yeah. of the churches I went to, um, they weren't the hellfire and brimstone like you're describing necessarily, but they always, always came back to hell. And they and they did use that technique sometimes, you know. Yeah. You know, the uh, you know, if you don't, if you die tonight, you know what will happen. Right. And, and to put that fear in you, and so yeah, I mean, and sometimes I mean, it comes out right at the very end. You know, like everything's everything's yes, wonderful. Everything sounds great. really good, and then at the end they throw that in there, and it's like, yeah. wait a minute, where'd that come from? <laughs> and it's like, oh no, you know. And then, yeah, I, went and then to, I, I went to this uh, revival meeting one time, and the whole thing was about how God was love. And about how Jesus was powerful to save, and they did these skits where Jesus was saving people, and Jesus was powerful to save, and yeah. God was great. And then at the very end, the person said, "Now you know, come up here, and you need to accept Jesus as your savior because if you don't, you're going to go to hell forever." Yeah, right. You know, and it, it's like, wait a second. I thought Jesus was powerful <laughs> to save. Why are we going to hell forever? Yeah, when did, exactly. Yeah. When did Jesus get weak and unable to save us? Right. Yeah, it's amazing. So um, I, I also. Uh, resonate with what you're saying about, you know, C.S. Lewis, and I, I, I read Mere Christianity and some of his other books, and and you, you do get this, it, it's it's very, very logical, very intellectual, and very uh, caring, It's and it's a, a yeah. totally different picture, and then later on, I realized, in my experience at least, um, a lot of evangelicals, not all, because a lot of them are more like C.S. Lewis, but, or, or some of them are, but there are a lot of evangelicals that just use those kinds of uh you know uh, arguments like c.s lewis just you know because it helps bring people in and gets their attention say oh okay well if if i if if c.s lewis is presenting a better picture uh then that will help people get into my church and and they don't really actually most evangelicals when you really uh dissect their doctrines um they really didn't believe the same way as C.S. Lewis. Yeah, because C.S. Really Lewis say in, that. <laughs> yeah, well, in his in in that Chronicles of Narnia, the last book on the um, the last battle, yes, Aslan. I that one. Yep. Yeah, there's a thinks that Aslan is going to destroy him, and he says, "No, you know, all true service, all true service, all true sincere service counts towards me, whether you know it's me or not." Right. And it's yeah. like, oh, okay, so that means that. It doesn't matter what, you know, what religious tradition or, or, or non-tradition or whatever, if a person is sincerely seeking after God, then however that happens in whatever way, that's something that God recognizes and counts. And I thought, right. man, that's a wide open, that certainly wasn't the, that certainly wasn't the idea that was being taught when I went to these churches. That's right. Yep. That's correct. And the, yeah, that's a very good point because that, that's rarely, if ever, taught or or spoken about in in most of these churches so yeah. um um let, let's pivot a little bit um i wanted to i think you did a really good job of laying out what i call the three major christian positions on humankind's destiny there's calvinism there's this thing called armenianism and then there's universalism mm -hmm. and then there's you you kind of you equate each one with um uh, another word, um, transactional, exclusivist, and inclusivist. 
So why don't you explain that as, yeah. <laughs> as, 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 as best you can in a summary? Yeah, well, I, you know, just visiting with people, I uh, would often just, we get in the conversation about all this and I'd say, well, really for me, this all comes down to grace. And there's basically been, you might think there's only two ways of understanding grace, but there's really three ways. These two ways are the first way, the way that most people know about is I call it transactional. I don't want to call it Arminianism, even though it's, it's really in Protestant, in the Protestant world, it's really based off the teaching of Jacob Arminius, but I don't want to get into that right at the beginning. Right, okay. I just want to say, there's what I call the transactional approach. And it's the way it works is that God gives everyone grace. And then God looks to see what they do with the grace. How much faith do they have? You know, what do they do with it? And then if they do enough, then, you know, then they, they get to pass through the pearly, they get to pass through the pearly gates. But if they don't do enough with the grace, I mean, if their faith isn't right, or they got wrong beliefs in there, or they don't do enough or something, or they don't get baptized the right way, or they don't evangelize enough, or they don't live a holy enough life or whatever, you know, then they get to the pearly gates and they're denied. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, and so that's it. So it, it, it's like a transaction. It's like God does God's part. And then you're supposed to do your part. And when do you know if you've done enough of your part? Well, kind of there's the rub, you know, right there. There's so many different answers to that question. A lot of, it develops a lot of insecurity with people. Then I say, and then there's another way of thinking about it. And I call it the exclusive approach because in this approach, God elects certain people at the beginning of time. And he says, I'm going to save these people out of all the mass and I'm going to make sure my grace will be with them. And that means that they're going to have faith and they're going to do everything that's necessary. And I won't lose any, any one of them. And so in that way of thinking about it, grace isn't a transaction. It's, it's really, truly a gift that you don't earn. It's just something that you receive. But the problem is, is that God decided that, you know, for different reasons, I guess, that he didn't want to give that gift. They didn't want to save everybody. So you got this situation where it would seem like you've only got these two options, sort of a transactional approach in which grace goes to all, but it doesn't actually save you. Or you've got this exclusive approach where grace goes to, goes to some and it saves all that it goes to, but it doesn't go to all. And you might think that you've either, you, you know, you just got to choose one or the other. Grace either saves alone, but doesn't go to all, or grace goes to all, but doesn't save alone. And you've got to choose one of the two. But then I say there's actually another approach, which I call the inclusive approach, because it's not exclusive and it's not transactional. Everybody's included. And what this means is that grace goes to everybody. And it means that God is with that, with the, that, that's, that the big surprise that we discover through Jesus is that God's grace is actually with everyone, that his love is perfect and pure, and that, and that he is not going to be in the business of finally losing any one of us. So in this way of thinking about it, which, which I then tell them, historically, you can find examples of in the early centuries of the church. In this way, grace goes to everyone. Grace is not limited in scope, and it's not limited in power because it's able to save as well. So that's right. just the way that I, be, that, that I started to be able to explain this to people. Right, and I like the way you equate them, um, even though you know most people aren't familiar with these some of these terms, Arminianism, and uh, but a lot most a lot of people have heard of Calvinism, and Calvinism is right. of course it's the exclusive approach where right. God only saves the elect, and and not everyone is the elect, and no one really knows, and and you know they have a good part of it, 
that's what they call irresistible grace that when they when there is the elect they will be saved they can't won't be able to resist grace and they will be saved yeah but yeah. if you're not elect uh then then you know you don't get that irresistible grace yeah, you you're, know yeah you're, you're you would think, <laughs> yeah well you would think that that would that would lead to like oh great i'm an i'm a calvinist i'm one of the elect but we actually had some folks that that came to our church and they were leaving a calvinist background and one of the reasons was was that it created so much insecurity in their lives because Calvinists have another doctrine called the perseverance of the saints. Mm -hmm. And the idea there is that if you really are one of the elect, you will die still. And when you die, you will be fully persevering in the faith. I mean, you will mm -hmm. die on fire for God. And if you die less than on fire for God, then that means you were never elect in the first place. He said that, or they said that in the churches they grew up in, uh, people would not even dare to say that they thought they were it may be even one of the elect until they had been in the faith for a long time and that and that if they you know when they talked about salvation they would say well i have hope but you just got to wait and find out you got to find out if you persevere all the way to the end so even in calvinism there was no they told me they went to a um, church camp a calvinist uh, church camp and they were not allowed to sing the song "It Is Well with My Soul" because that's too presumptuous. Oh my gosh! The way they had, <laughs> the way incredible. they were, the only thing they could sing was they could sing "Is It Well with My Soul." Oh, I see. Okay. Because they didn't want these kids presuming that they were among the eleven. Oh right, right. That's amazing. Um, yeah, it's amazing the little twists that people put on these things. Um, and then um, I think that the way these, the way that you lay this out is very powerful and um, the the universalism or the inclusive uh, uh, way of looking at it just kind of shines through when you when you when you compare these two now yeah. see I didn't grow up in the Bible belt I grew up in uh, New England and we definitely had conservative Christianity in New England it wasn't as pronounced yeah. so you know but when I did get into conservative churches, you know, they weren't, they weren't hellfire and brimstone direct. They were kind of more subtle, but they did have the doctrine of hell and they didn't necessarily teach you what Calvinism was. And I, I didn't even know what that was until later mm -hmm. on. And, um, and then it's kind of like you learn these things later on and you realize, oh, that church is Calvinist. Oh, right. that church is Armenian right. or whatever, or yeah. free will church or whatever. And I, I just remember, I remember one experience that I had where I went to an Assembly of God church that was uh, the next town over. Uh -huh. and, and they that they preached that night on uh, the, the possibility that you could lose your salvation. All right. Yeah, definitely. Right. So that was the Armenian, you know, the um, transactional thing, right? You right. Know, if you're not, you're not good enough, you, you might fall away and lose your salvation. Well, I, you know, I was around people that were saying once saved, always saved. And then, but yep. then you would say, well, what if, what if somebody gets saved, but then, you know, they don't follow through on anything, then they'll say, well, they were never saved in the first place. Yeah. And there was, that's, that's one way to get around it. If you're a Calvinist, it's like, oh, well then they were never saved to begin with. Yeah. They were never but, elect, they were right. never elect, or they never really believed. So right. either way, it still ended up. It still you, ended up. But if they were, if you were a free will Armenian type approach, then you would say some some people would say, well, then you you can lose your salvation. You yeah. can freely choose, but then you freely choose to walk away. And I just remember I walked out of that service and I was like terrified. I was like, oh my God, I did. Yeah. This is crazy. They didn't teach this at my 
American Baptist Church down the street. I mean, this, what is going on? And it was kind of like, for me, it was like, I was so naive back then. I thought Christians all believe the same thing. <laughs> I thought, right. I thought yeah. we were all on the same page. And I started yeah. to realize, no, we're not. And there's some really crazy things out there. And and then even my own church believes some crazy things. And so it, it's just eye-opening when you learn all this. Um, yeah. One of the things that, uh, that, you know, of course, any book on Christian universalism has to deal with is, is all these terms that you read in the New Testament, hell, eternal punishment, fire, eternal destruction. What, what are some of the examples of, of poor translations that you've discovered uh, where those words are in, you find them in English translations, but they really shouldn't be there? Well, I mean, it's not just Christian universalists that are raising questions about this. There's also a growing group of people Called, they're called annihilationists, or they believe in right, right, okay. And so there's a lot of people that are saying, you know, this the whole eternal torment doctrine is based on some pretty sketchy interpretations of the original language. Because if you look at the original languages, well, first of all, you know, you find out that the word hell is an English word, and that that it's not a biblical word, and that it's an English word that was used to translate a number of different uh, biblical words, and the word hell, the English word hell was so loaded with all kinds of freight from Dante's Inferno and all that kind of stuff that that word hell is not really a good translation for the actual words um, that are in the text. And so when Jesus talked about um, judgment, uh, he was talking about the destruction that comes whenever we pursue violence towards others, whenever we demean others through violent talk and through violence in any, any kind of form, even towards enemies. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, he warns about uh, the danger of entering the judgment of Gehenna. And if you look at the historical background of that, you know, Gehenna was a valley outside of Jerusalem that had become associated with judgment for a bunch of different reasons. But a Jewish person in that day would have thought that Jesus was talking about destruction. He was warning people about the destruction towards which, towards, you know, which violence leads. And then I discovered mm -hmm. that if you really look at his teaching, what he's warning them is, is this violence that's gotten going it, it is going to result in a violent uh, uprising against Rome, and they're going to come and crush you, and this whole place is going to be destroyed. And so his message was that, you know, that violence, demeaning, demeaning other people, uh, I, you know, uh, rejecting other people, judging other people, using bad language about other people, um, even your enemies, that's all demeaning, and that all that all ends that, that 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 that's displeasing to God. It's not love. God is love, and that ends that ends in judgment. Uh, well, one of the things that I discovered is that the judgment language of Jesus was all associated with the destruction to which sin leads. And for for Jesus, sin was really acting in in ways that weren't loving towards others, even towards your enemies. So if you read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is very clear that if you're if you are acting in unloving ways, even toward your enemies, you're calling them names, you're demeaning them, uh, you're judging them, then that that incurs destruction on 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 your side. And then the then the question is, what does this destruction lead towards? And Jesus talked about a a place called Gehenna, which was an actual uh, called the Valley of Hinnom, which was right outside of Jerusalem, which the Jews of his day would most likely have associated with with destruction, with the destruction of the body not with eternal torment. Right, right, yeah. So, so then the question just becomes, okay, well, what what do we do with passages that talk about destruction? 
and what I discovered is, is that the, the word that is associated with destruction in Jesus' parable, uh, three parables that he tells in Luke chapter 15 is the Greek word apolumai. And apple, to, something can be destroyed, but still be in existence. So in those, in those three parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son are all in a state of destruction. But then when they're found, they are, they are restored. And Jesus described God as the one for whom all things are possible. So God can even restore from destruction. And if you start looking at the whole Bible, you can find all kinds of examples where there is restoration after destruction, that that's a pattern that you can find. Right. So, and so that once I started putting, I, 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 I give a lot more background to, to all of that in the book, but just very simply, that was kind of the way I started working through all of that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you also got into some of the other words like punishment, um, uh, the Greek colossus right. is really more of a restorative, corrective uh, punishment where yeah, they people the Greek... are restored, restored back to you know, uh, a, a better place rather than destroyed. Yeah, the Greeks had two words that they used for for uh, punishment. One was tamoria, and the other word was colossus. And tamoria was uh, retribution. And that's right. where, that's like in the South where you, so you have offended my honor, you know, <laughs> and I have to, you know, and I have to, I have to, we have to duel yeah. because all I have is my honor and you've, you've, you've ruined my honor. So we, honor and a shame culture and Tamoria, the reason I'm punishing you is to restore my honor. Okay. Mm -hmm. But then there was another word that the Greeks used for uh, punishment and it Colossus and it was often associated like in horticulture with where you would look at a tree and you would judge that, okay, this branch has got disease in it. So it needs to be, it needs to be cut off for the overall health of the tree. And so this was a, a much more restorative idea that judgment is restorative and for the purpose of just removing the sickness uh, so that the, so that the whole can be healthy. Right. Yep. And, and then there was the final word like eternal. I mean, why is that a bad translation? Well, the word uh, eternal is a hard word for us to even deal with in English. Uh, you know, it got, it has all kinds of meaning in English. I can, I can say, man, I went to that movie and lasted forever. Yeah. <laughs> we all know that it didn't mean that. Right. Right. Know? Does it mean that? And uh, what I found out was that the the in the Hebrew and the Greek world, they 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 had more of a way of thinking about time as a series of aeons or ages, that mm -hmm, were, mm -hmm. and that God was the God of the ages or the aeons. As a matter of fact, God was the one who had created the the ages, and it was it was in the ages that God would accomplish all of God's redemptive purposes, and that the ultimate goal of God was at the end of the ages. God would finally be all in all. Mm -hmm. And th so that meant that the ages were kind of like school and almost thinking, well, yeah, you know, so God uses the ages, uses time, but God is above time, but God uses these ages so that people can come into existence and have these experiences and begin to learn. And then the idea was if they had not learned what they needed to learn in the age to come or in the ages to come, they would, they would, they would go into judgment or correction because they mm -hmm. weren't, they weren't, you know, they had not learned yet. In the right. in this way of thinking, didn't seem strange to the early Greek-speaking church fathers because they were all familiar with this way of thinking about time. What happens that later on, Bible gets translated into Latin, 
And instead of thinking about ages, now we're thinking about the Latin term eternum, from which we get eternity. So the, the, the Latin speaking Western church thought about time as two eternal states, one either of glory or of retribution, not as a series of ages that were, that were progressing towards God being all in all. And right. once, I, once I saw that, it, made, it helped me to understand why some of the verses are translated the way they are in the English. And it just made me see more possibilities uh, in the text. Right. Yeah. So e eternal is, is better translation is uh, it's aeon or pertaining to an age. It's not, yeah. you know, something that goes forever. And then, of course, people well, go, or, well, then or, that case, in that case, what about eternal life? That means life doesn't, yeah. eternal well, life it, isn't eternal. Well, when Jesus talked to it, and so that God is aeonian, but God is the God of the of the ages. And so aeonian life is the is properly the life of God. Yes, and so right. Jesus talked that way, and he said, you know, he when, he when he talked about eternal life, he wasn't talking about life that begins after you die and then continues on. He was talking about the aeonian or the eternal um, uh, life of God, which is now present in these aeons, and you can now enter into this life of God right now. So right. you can enter into the, the aeonian life of God, or you can go into the aeonian correction of God. Yeah, it's, right. And yeah, and that's it, the sheep and the goats parable, right? Yeah, but God was the one. God was God was a, time for them was something that that God created. That God was the God who created time. God made the aeons, and when the aeons were completed, then they thought the the well the universalist early church fathers thought once that the aeons were completed, then we would finally be all in all, and we would be beyond time as well. We would be. Uh, we would transcend the the whole time and space continuum. Right, right. So um, this is excellent material. Um, I want to get to the a core question: Is why yeah. do you think universalism is necessary? Why is it necessary logically, historically, and morally? Yeah. Well, that and, and when I started writing the book, I didn't init initially think I was going to come to that strong conclusion because what I was mainly just arguing was that it was legitimate. But then the more I got into it, the more I realized that in David Bentley Hart, his book, um, uh, That All Shall Be Saved, really, uh, really was influential for me in, in this regard. Right. Yep. I'm familiar um, with that book. Yep. Yeah. But he really makes, I think, a fantastic argument there that, that the, if God is all, uh, God is the all good creator of all that is, and all-knowing, all-powerful, that the however creation ends up is ultimately the revelation of the moral character of God. So if there's any, if there's any residual evil, anything bad at the end of creation, then that rebounds right back to the very beginning because God knew that that would happen and then accepted it as a um, uh, uh, necessary cost of creation, I guess. But that introduces a little bit of evil, or depending on how you know how bad creation turns out, it in, potentially introduces a lot of evil. Right. And so then, the character of God, and you know, Christians have become so used to the idea that oh yeah, God loses people, uh, but God is still good, and th they've been Christian education. Ironically, has been one of the things has been for the purpose of teaching people that God can do bad things and still be called good. Yes. <laughs> if you're not indoctrinated in that and you're just on the outside looking in, you're saying, wait a second, we got a being who's controlling everything that's happening, 
who makes bad outcomes for people and then goes ahead with it. And then the people have the bad outcomes. God is certainly not surprised because God knew it was going to happen. And so I guess, oh, well, but how can you call that? You, you might be able to call that lots of things, but absolute goodness is not one of them. That's right. Right. That's true. Yeah. So you can see, really see the necessity of this because if it's like, like you said, I mean, like, I think it was David Hart, or maybe it was you that said, you know, if it does turn out that there are some people who are not restored and they and they go to hell, right. Then, then, uh, you know, or even if, even if, if everyone does get saved at the end, but there was a potential that people would go to hell, that even then it's like, well, wait a minute, you know, God wouldn't have known maybe who's going to be saved. Maybe some people are going to be lost, but oh, great. We've, we got away with it. We, you know, so it's, yeah. it's no matter which way you look at it, there's a problem. Well, I thought it was, uh, you know, sometimes I tell people, so let's say that, that, you know, we're all there. It's the end of, you know, it's the end of the ages and the last person, you know, comes across the finish line Yeah, uh-huh. and we're all cheering and everything. And God says, Whew. Yeah. And I wasn't sure that was going to happen. Exactly. Right. Well, well, you know, I want to say, wait a second. What do you mean you didn't know yeah. if that was going to happen? I thought you were all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-good. So certainly right. you would have known that that was going to happen. Right. You know, so yes. it, or it would be like it would be like if, uh, you know, you were little kids and uh, your parents took you on a trip and uh, you finally got to your destination and they turned around and looked at you and they said, Phew glad we made it there's a lot of times there where we did, didn't didn't yeah, know right. we ever, you know we didn't know that we were gonna make it and you're like what you took us on a trip and you didn't know you didn't right. know where you were going or you didn't know if we were right gonna make exactly it. you you put us through all this risk and we didn't know about it yeah yeah <laughs> right that's it makes sense so okay here's one of the big questions that that people have and problems or objections to, that people have with universalism if it's true you know, what motivates people to follow the right path, to follow uh, the love ethic, as I call it, or, you know, rather than just making, you know, just saying, oh, we can send to our hearts content, we can do whatever we want, because everyone's going to be saved in the end. How do you, yeah, you know, how do you answer that? Well, first of all, I think the only people that really have a problem with that are people that are just doing Christianity because they don't, because they're, because they don't really want to, but they just have to, because they don't want to go to hell. Right. So, it's fear-based, right? Right. And so if somebody comes along and says, oh, God's ultimate plan is to restore everybody. Well, then they, they instantly turn into the, you know, the elder brother. That's not fair. You know, he wondered, you know, the son of yep. yours has squandered everything. And here I am working away for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think the people that react that way are just bitter it, that, that, you know, like, listen, I'm putting in the work. I'm doing all this stuff I really don't want to do so I can go to heaven. And why would I be doing any of this? If, if, if the threat of hell wasn't hanging over my head. Right, exactly, yeah. Okay, so then what you have is that people that they're not really, they're not really doing it for the right reasons. And, the, and I think that, but, but if you're doing it for the right reason, what you understand is that the good news is that God really is truly loving and wonderful and good. And God's kingdom of perfect love is available for us to live in right now. And like Jesus said, he had come, not that we have life, just have life, but have fullness of life in the midst of all of the difficult things that are surrounding us in life, which drag so many of us down. You know, the good news that Jesus came to offer basically is this was his gospel. The kingdom of God is here. And now we can learn to live in love 
We don't have to hate other people. We don't have to be violent. We can extend love towards all people. We can live the life of heaven, the eternal life of heaven uh, uh, right now. And we can invite other people to experience it, experience it with us. And so we can afford to love and forgive and, and just be full of this wonderful love and energy and spirit of God right now. And right, Jesus, right. Jesus described that as not just living, but fullness of life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so that's yeah. the, that's the point. That's the point of the whole thing. Yeah, that's right. And so it's, and when you when you really catch that vision and you understand and have that experience of love that uh, uh, God's inclusive love, we can we can do the same thing. And you learn to let go of bitterness and unforgiveness, and you know, getting hung up on things and having always having the things go your way or you feel, you know, insecure, then your life just becomes so different. It's just, it's just amazing. Yeah. So, I mean, these are all spiritual, these are all like spiritual um, lessons that we can learn. Uh, And that's the reason why you, you, you follow this, this path. And it's, and it's not a religion in my mind. It's, it's, it's a, it's a path. It's a way of life. Yeah. And plus, you know, I worked with uh, over the years, I've gotten to work with people that are really truly acquainted with failure in life. Like in life, the only thing that's only things that have ever happened to them are bad things. And every time somebody has said, okay, you need to do this or you're going to fail, they failed. And so all they're acquainted with is failure. And if you tell them, if you go to them and you say, listen, I got good news for you. If you're able to pass this standard, you're going to be able to go to heaven. Well, they just look at you and say, listen, why don't we just cut to the chase? I've failed every standard ever put in front of me. There's no way that I'm going to pass this one, especially this one. Apparently, even the best people don't don't get this one. So why don't I just go ahead and just, you know, not even not even disappoint everybody? Because I can already tell you I'm going to fail at this. That's not good news. And so what, what I discovered is the good news is that is that God is with us even in our deepest, darkest failures, and God will never abandon us and forsake us, and that God knows how to heal us even when we think we have a sickness that we don't know how we can ever be healed of. Now that's now we're starting to get some gospel. Now we're starting to get some good news here. That, that's, that's a great way to put it. So uh, I've got a couple more questions for you because we're running out of time, David, but I think one of the things I wanted to uh, address was you talk a little bit about church and how, you know, when you're kind of open about, you know, what uh, uh, doctrines there should be, you know, churches don't get that big. And, and then you talked about spiritual experiences being more important, or let's say, you know, experiences in, in, a, in a community that's not necessarily a church is more important than, than, than church itself. Maybe you could speak to that a little bit. Well, I just, I just found that uh, I, I remember when I went to seminary, I learned that the word that we translate church is the Greek word ekklesia, mm-hmm. and that that's not a spiritual word. It's just a word for a gathering. I think my right. said, yep. in the ancient world, you could have had a gathering of plumbers <laughs> that would have been called an ekklesia. Yeah, it was that, actually that word was used to describe a mob of people that came after Paul in the book of Acts. <laughs> yeah, it's just a gathering. It's a neutral right. word. It's just, it's just a gathering. Right. And that the early church was really a community of people that existed for mutual support. It wasn't like mm-hmm, this big mm-hmm. ritualistic, ritualistic deal. Mm-hmm. It was right. gathering together for encouragement and, you know, and support. And that basically just what happened over time was it became more ritualized and more organized. And it, 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 it be, and so that what happened was that word in your, in your book, you talk about this a lot, 
that word church began to take on different associations or connotations right. about what that mm -hmm. about what that meant. And so I remember uh, when I was working with a recovery situation one time, uh, the person and this wasn't a church setting. This was just a recovery or uh, 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 a recovery program. They said that there is no recovery without community. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And yeah, right. And so, and so, uh, you know, I just think that the path of isolation is not is not the one that brings us uh, where the where we really need to be. That there's that there's some there's some recognition that community in some form is is you know it's just important. And right. that and that what I've discovered is some of the you know that forgiveness of God and the wisdom of God and all of that stuff that's come to me through other people. Other, other people have spoken words to me. Other mm -hmm. people have helped me to be healed and have encouraged me and given me support. And it's just interesting when you get in community, how often, you know, the thing that you need to hear is something that somebody else tells you, or the thing that they need to hear is something that you tell them. But somehow right, yeah. when you're in that community, there's a spirit, there's a good spirit that gets flowing and that doesn't have to be inside a church building. And I think there's a, there's a growing, I know, I know people now, I know ministers that are doing church without buildings as service, as, as groups of people gathering together to serve and love people and follow the way of Jesus without a building and right. just to be together in community. Right. And, and I think that's going to be, I think that way of thinking is on, is going to be on the rise. It is. Uh, the, there's well, and some people call them home churches, but some people don't. I mean, there's the, there's actually a pub theology movement. <laughs> people right. get together in pubs, and before that forgotten gospel conference, I went to one of those, uh, and you know, the whole group of people. Robin Perry showed up, and you know, we had this little conversation, drinking beer together, you know, and we, and and uh, we have a in my sphere, I have a discussion group that we get together and. Uh, it's, it's, it's a community of people. We all, we definitely don't all agree, uh, believe the same things, but we definitely encourage each other and we, we talk through things. And then my final example would be, um, I'm in a, an organization called Rotary International. I don't know if yeah, you've heard I'm in, that. I'm in, I'm in Lions Club. Okay, it's, it's something very similar. See, yeah. and so we do service projects. Our model is service above self. So you know, we're kind of doing what Jesus taught, even though we're not calling it that, you know, <laughs> so there's so many yeah. different ways that you can serve humanity. And well, and, and sometimes really... I've wondered, you know, like I'll go to you know, go to Lions Club yeah. and everything, everything at Lions Club, just like at Rotary Club, it's all based on, OK, here we are together. How can we be a blessing to some people in the world? How can we help? Yeah, right. How can we yeah. help into disease? How can we give somebody some hope? You know, how yeah. can we help somebody that's blind? How can we? Exactly. Uh, you know, focusing can, on what really matters most and what Jesus. Yeah. Taught, and you know, even though you're not a religious organization. Yeah. OK, you're not a religious organization, but you can certainly feel that there is a spiritual. Oh, thing yes, absolutely. That is, that is happening there. And mm -hmm. then the reverse is also true. You can be in church in church settings and there's a whole bunch of religious stuff happening, but you don't really feel like there's a lot of actual compassion for people. That's yeah, a part. Right. That's a part of all of it. Right. Right. Yeah. They're and all so, saying the right things and saying the right doctrine that supposedly. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and but, there's another. Right. There's another thing that I found out. I start, once I started working around people in recovery, I found out that there would be people that were in recovery and they would start reaching out to the God of their understanding, the God of their understanding, and really good spiritual things were happening to them, 
when they were just reaching out to a being of unconditional love that they had no name for. Yeah, right. Exactly. And that's, that's, I think that's the way God, he can yeah. be anonymous if he wants to, if, you know. Well, yeah. And I had one God, guy, yeah, I had humble. one guy, I had one guy that came to our church, basically, long story short, he, he had met a God of unconditional love, the God of his understanding of unconditional love, but he didn't know if that God was allowed at church. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. And and the, the final thing I want to bring up on church is that, you know, when you say they don't have real community, but they have the right doctrines. I mean, I've seen that so many times. It's 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 spiritual abuse. People get I've seen people get spiritually abused in churches because people the church puts the doctrines and their view of the Bible all ahead of loving people and 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 caring for people. And when you do that, you end up spiritually yeah. abusing. People. Well, again, really if somebody, if, if that's the most important thing, if somebody gets outside of the lines, yes, you know, then they, ha it's kind of like in the Old Testament, you know, the most severe part of the, of the Jewish experience, if somebody was outside of the line, then they were, they were killed, because yeah. you, I mean, you have to do away with somebody, you can't allow them to be, uh, to be on the wrong side of the line. Yeah, it's it's what I call violent sacrificial religion. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, basically just, you cut people off. Yeah, you right, know. and that's in full force right now. And there's a lot of people. Right. Yeah. You know, this is really we're that the, the fundamentalism is really drilling down right now. Right. One this final is, question, David. Um, yeah. uh, why do you think universalism is becoming more acceptable? uh either if people say it's possible or they say it's necessary i mean what what's what's driving this and why is there change even among some evangelicals not very many yeah. but some well you know i think we're in to me we're in a time that's every bit as revolutionary i think maybe more revolutionary than the protestant reformation which was driven by the printing press mm -hmm. and so now this modern reformation or what i don't know what you want to call it but things are definitely changing and and I think it's the internet and the availability of information. I mean, you know, 20 years ago in small towns, where would somebody go if they wanted to think more about their Christianity? They go to the local Christian evangelical Christian bookstore, which was the only right. the only place. Well, now, you know, they can they can go online and they can find all of this information out. And now you go to uh, you can go and you can search, and it's easy to find you know books and information about. Uh, you know, in just information about all these things, and they can find out that they don't have to give up the Bible in order to believe this way, mm -hmm. that they can still fully affirm the Bible. You know, I don't have, I'm, I'm more, I guess I'm more moderate. I see a lot of humanity in the Bible when I look mm -hmm. at it, but I see also see a lot of God in the Bible when I look at it. And right. so, you know, so that that gives me a little bit more of a complex understanding of scripture. I still value it. Uh, as a matter of fact, learning to see the humanity in the scripture has made it come a little more alive to me. Um, but uh, there are some people that have such a high view of the inspiration of scripture that there's almost no humanity in it at all. It's just God's word basically dictated through humanity. But even people that have that high a view of inspiration of scripture are starting to come to these same conclusions. So it really doesn't matter you know, how high or low a view of scripture you have that even people that believe in the inerrancy of scripture are starting to see the good arguments that can be made from this, from the scripture itself when it's understood in its original context and languages. Right, right. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, on the Bible, I've really come to the same, some of the same conclusions. Um, well, 
this has been a great conversation, David. Unfortunately, we're running out of time. So um, I just want to give you a hearty thank you for joining us. And uh, I really appreciate uh, your perspective. Well, I appreciate the, uh, you know, what, 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 you, what you've done. I think a lot of people on your life path, you know, might have just walked away from Christianity. But I think what you did was you, you drilled down and you found out that Jesus is still, is still as valuable and as important as he ever was. Uh, we just need to clear away some of the things that got attached to him over the course of history. And I think that by doing good history, like you're talking about, we can get back to a really beautiful view of, of Jesus and a really powerful spirituality. Yeah, I think you've summarized it very well. Yeah, get the cobwebs off and all the things that are <laughs> really not historical and you, you're left with something very beautiful. Yeah. So great, um, David, we're gonna, we're gonna sign off. Uh, I wanna also let people know that if they wanna get your book, they can find it on Amazon. Yeah. It's, um, the name of the book is Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Uh, also, you can go to David Artman. Uh, Artman was A-R-T-M-A-N dot net. And you can find uh, a lot of material, including his podcast. That goes by the same name, right? Grace Saves All podcast. Yeah, there's a, there's a podcast page on the internet um, on my right, website. Right. And you can get all of the episodes there. Right. David's got some great guests as well. So check him out. And folks, we're going to sign off for now. And we'll see you next time. Uh, as usual, enjoy responsibly. The Spiritual Brew Pub Podcast will help you navigate spiritually after or during a belief shift, deconstruction, or crisis of faith. Not to try to convert you to a particular destination, but give you the resources you need to evaluate your future belief or unbelief and help you follow the religious historical evidence wherever it leads. I'm your host, Michael Camp, a recovering conservative evangelical, the operative word being recovering, sharing my journey and helping others rebuild faith or a reasoned philosophy of life. So grab your brew of choice and learn how fact-based history helps us both critique and rethink faith. Why do we call it a brew pub? Because we like to hang out in them, at least metaphorically. A pub is a great place to let your hair down, share your true thoughts about your journey, and discuss things with an open mind in a non-judgmental environment.